The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, stop playing Mafia Wars and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 514 with guest Julie Lerman, recorded live Monday, January 4th, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, the NRTV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Great City Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web Applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And now, the only man in New London County to use a studio isolation booth as a child timeout place, Carl Franklin. Thanks very much. Carl here, Richard there. Howdy. How are you, sir? I am well. The snow is piling up out here. It's just rain here. I've basically not had a winter. We got dumped on. And now I'm coming to you, and it just suddenly hit me that if I'm coming to visit you, I'm going to have to get ready for winter again. Yeah, and it's just starting, too. You know, the white stuff is just terrible out here. <laughs> it gets bad. But at least I, I like I was happy to see the city of New London. They came and hauled it away with and I get get this, back hose, forklifts and dump trucks. Nice. That's what they used to plow they not just plowing, they got out the the heavy machinery. They hauled it out. I used to do some work in Michigan and watch them do that. They they would load all the snow into parking lots and then spend the whole day hauling it away. Yeah, and then they sell it to ice houses or something. I don't know what they do know. with it. I think they yeah. just dump it at the edge of town, something Probably. like that. Can make salty but you know what? I'm going to be in your town by the end of the month. That's going to be great. It's going to be yeah. awesome to see. I hope we can do a couple of shows face-to-face and just see if the people can tell a difference. Because every so often I get email from folks and they suddenly realize we live at the opposite ends of this continent. Well, you know what else is awesome about New London is that I can walk in in this town. I'm the guy who plays guitar in the pub at night, you know, and plays darts. Yeah. And nobody has any idea about .NET, anything, anything around here or even programming or, you know, or their computers for that matter. They just, they're just not computer people in this town. Doesn't matter. I like that though. All right. Let's get started with Better Know a Framework. All right. What do you got? So Better Know Framework is, of course, this little section that I just highlight a little piece of the .NET Framework so that uh, 
Hopefully you can find something interesting. Go check it out. Uh, today I'm looking at the system.windows.data.object.data.provider class. Huh. And seeing as how Jules is coming on and talking about data. And uh, this wraps and creates an object that you can use as a binding source. What's interesting about this is that there are many ways to create an object that you can use as a binding source. Uh, you can create it in the resources section of your XAML, or you can create in code and set it as the data context of your window. So the object data provider lets you create your object in XAML to be available as a binding source and provides properties that you can execute a query on your object in mind of the results. Cool. So that's kind of cool. Awesome. And uh, that's that's how it's done in Wipifa and Silverlight. That's how they do it. That's how you do it. What you got? I got an email. Well, okay. It starts out, hey, Carl and Richard. I started programming DOS applications 25 years ago in BASIC. Then wow. I moved to writing Windows app in C, then in C++ using Microsoft Foundation classes. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I took a long sabbatical from serious programming for about the last 10 years, and just over the last year or so, I've been trying to get back into developing web and Windows applications. So he's basically missed .NET. Mm. That is one fast train to trying to get back on. Fortunately, there are lots of good books, blogs, and podcasts to help me catch up with new technology. .NET Rocks has been my go-to podcast for helping me get up to speed. Awesome. I have listened to just about every one of the last 300 shows that have been cherry-picking the earlier shows. Good. I am currently working on a project that involves the Entity Framework. I enjoyed the shows with Dan Simmons on EF1 and EF4 and show 319 with Julie Lerman talking about EF1. Do you think you can get Julie back on to talk about EF4? No. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Keep up the great work. Rex Harrison. Rex Thanks, Harrison, Rex. he wrote My Fair Lady, didn't he? Or he acted in it? I don't think it's the same guy. <laughs> wow, he's been around a long time. <laughs> this guy's got a .NET Rocks mug, and you can get one too. Just send us an email at .NET Rocks at Franklin's.net. And the answer to Rex's question is, okay. All right. I guess we changed our mind. What the heck? Julie's here. She's going to talk about the EF4. Julie Lerman is a Microsoft MVP, .NET mentor, and consultant who lives in the hills of Vermont. You can find Julie presenting on data access and other Microsoft.net topics at user groups and conferences all around the world. Julie blogs at thedatafarm.com slash blog and is the author of the highly acclaimed Programming Entity Framework. She's currently working on the second edition of the book. You can follow her on Twitter at Julie Lerman VT. That's J-U-L-I-E-L-E-R-M-A-N-V-T. Welcome back, Julie. Hey, guys. How are you? So, good. You think that'll get me two or three more followers on Twitter now, huh? I hope so. (laughs) That's what it's all about these days, isn't it? Followers on Twitter. I don't understand what they expect me to say. They They keep subscribing to me. The numbers keep rising. I have no idea what I'm supposed to say out there, but... Well, the funny part is the, that you get all those spam followers, the, the, the kind of Britney porn star followers, and, the, and your number goes up. And oh, down, I have up porn and down. star followers, but they're not, fa- they're not spam. <laughs> okay. You invited them. <laughs> <laughs> they're my friends. Yeah. Oh, I mean like <laughs> Mark. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we just found out that Mark Miller and Karen Mangicotti Miller have a new baby in the oven and it's a boy and its name will be Campbell Franklin Miller. 
And I'm not kidding about that. That's awesome. Yeah. Campbell. Very funny. Yep. So little little pieces of Richard are going to be walking around Mystic, you know. I did not contribute genetically to that child. <laughs> All I did was perform the wedding ceremony. Can't blame me. Entity Framework 4 is what we're here to talk about, Jules. Yeah, well, we we missed the EF2 and EF3 discussion, though, didn't yeah, where we? Where did those yeah, where go? Where did they go? <laughs> well, I, the, uh, the rumors are that Microsoft was just trying to uh, trick people into thinking that it's a really well-established product by, by jumping right up to four. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think they just got fed up with all these crazy versions of things and decided to bring every make everything four. Yeah, it's just aligning now. with the the .NET framework. So it's .NET four and it's EF four. Silverlight four and Visual Studio two thousand ten. Yeah. Yeah. So what's new with dot, with Entity Framework four or with me? What's new with Entity Framework four? Oh, Entity Framework four has come a long way, baby. Um, and we've been watching it and playing with it ever since the betas have come out. And of course, the the ADO.net team has a blog that they call EF Design, where they've been had been asking a lot of people um, for input, and also showing telling them some of the things that they were thinking about. So they got a lot of feedback. Um, and you've talked to Danny, so you know about um, him getting people like Martin Fowler and Jimmy Nelson and Eric Evans involved. Yeah, and there's been I think the. For the really big picture of the new entity framework, I think all of the agile development that they've introduced in there really is the big, the big thing that's happening with entity framework. There's all kinds of other stuff, the designer improvements, um, a lot of support for end-tier development, but the fact that there's the, the POCO support um, and te- you can write testable code and you can do domain-driven development. There's just been so much in there. I think that's really, for me, that's the big story about Entity Framework. Foreign keys? Foreign key, yeah. That's, it's funny. That's not a little thing, but compa- but it's it's another very important thing. It's a, it's a small a small piece of what's in there, but with huge impact, having having access to the foreign keys. People just were not ready to to do, you know, classic um, entity relationship modeling, and we needed our foreign keys. And having having access to the get, to them again um, is making all kinds of things a lot easier, especially when you're working cross processes, doing services, things like that. Now, it just begs the question: Why why didn't we have foreign keys before? Um, because originally the entity data model. For the Entity Framework, Entity Data Model was based on any relationship modeling. So everything was, the relationships were all defined in the relationships. They were kind of self-describing. And so the foreign keys were, were not exposed. They weren't surfaced um, as as properties in the entities in the model. So it was all the way everything worked when you navigate from one entity to another you know the classic customers and orders, right? You can just say customers dot orders. Right. They really thought they were doing us a favor by hiding them, but it turns out you need them. When you're thinking about queries, not having to deal with a foreign keys is wonderful, and we can still query without. We can still query using navigations. We don't need the right. foreign keys. We don't have to build joins. That's really 
a big reason why having the relationships, having that dependency on the relationships is very, very helpful. Mm. To um, Instead of having to worry about constantly joining, 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 joining. But the problem that came up without having access to the foreign keys was, I mean, at, at first, you know, people just are so used to using foreign keys and assigning values that way. Um, that becomes a problem. And then you'll find, okay, well, I'll, I have a default value I want to uh, stuff in there. Maybe it's a default that you weren't able to define somehow for some reason in the model. Having the relationship if you wanted to define that default, you have to have the entity in memory, the actual object. So you would have to go out and query for it if you didn't have it, and that made no sense, right? I've got that. I've got that foreign key. So, so that's one reason um, why it's a lot easier. You know, people just want to be able to assign that foreign key directly mm-hmm. instead of having to assign the relationship. Mm-hmm. But the other, um, the other place we're finding it's just so much easier is when you're out. You're not in. You, a little when you're out of process, when you're working with a client application, hmm. um, and not having to deal with all of the relationships, because if you're if you're defining relationships by the entities when you're moving things across processes, there's so much confusion, and uh, some a lot of the stuff just isn't natural to work with, and a lot of things you have to undo and untie and retie in order to make things work. So having the foreign keys in there, which, by the way, is not necessary. Um, you don't have to use it. You're not forced right. to use it. it but, but it's it there is, if you need it's it. the default. Yeah. And we have binary property types and keys now, right? Yeah, you could. I I think the the people using databases like SQL Server CE were having problems with that. Or is that with GUIDs? I can't remember. But there there was a big problem with um, databases that use binaries for defining defining keys and any framework did not support that but it does support that now i haven't even played around with yeah that's kind of thing. kind of a strange thing for me anyway to wrap my head around but i guess if you need it you need it yeah yeah exactly i mean there's i saw those questions the question for that particular thing a number of times in the in the forums so there are definitely people who need it Especially when you're dealing with the fact that Entity Framework can work against so many different types of databases. Right. So many of us, like you, me, uh, Richard, probably you too, um, you know, I use, I use SQL Server, mm-hmm. right? So I'm not yeah. familiar with all those different kinds of other needs that people have, but there's, you know, there just needed to be some more flexibility there. We have a lazy loading turned on by default now, right? When you start, when you create a new model. Still have a problem with that <laughs> because of all the all the stuff that's going on. That you know the the options are um, have life be kind of like data sets, mm. where um, unless you explicitly asked to bring that data in, it's just not going to be there. So if you say you know, well, give me the count of orders for the customer. Well, if you forgot to query for those orders, the count's going to be zero. Right, but nobody's going to tell you. Oh, but wait, there might be some in the database. You're just looking at what's in memory. Mm. So lazy loading helps get around that. And people who are using ORMs and even linked and linked to SQL, also another ORM, are really used to having that benefit. 
for me, as somebody who is constantly watching what's happening um, on the server, it just I'm just so worried about people using it without paying attention to what's going on the mm. server. When you suddenly are, you know, say you're data binding across relationship in a web application, and as the web app is trying to render those relationships, it's going to go out and yep. go back to the server over and over and over again. So it's it's not that it shouldn't be there. It's just more for me a matter of educating people just to be aware of what's going on and make an explicit decision about when to use it and when not to use it. Yeah. Um, I guess there's now improvements for people who are using, you know, POCO objects, using Notepad to write uh, to write entity framework um, code. Yeah, well, <laughs> Notepad or whatever. Notepad. You can, you can write yeah. POCO objects with, with Visual Studio. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the big dependency on entities having to inherit from entity object is now gone. Okay. By default, when you build if you know if you build a model and generate your classes from the model by default you're still going to get entity objects um, but now you're not required to have entity objects in order to get all of the benefits of of entity framework so to you know to get the change tracking and the querying and the updating and and the relationship management you can do that without having to have your objects inherit from entity objects so now you can just have your own objects they can be what you want them to be, um, and they don't. They don't have to know anything about the entity framework. So what what happens is things are turned around. The onus is on the object context in the entity framework. It instead of the ob the entity objects constantly feeding the context, what's going on? What am I doing? I made a change. Somebody changed some data. The it's the context can look and say, hey, what's going on in there? This sounds like a key technology for for brownfielding entity framework, just bringing entity framework into an existing application. Yep. Yes. Well, it, it's funny because there's I, uh, my brain went the database way, right? Because um, entity framework version one, and so we can do it in the new version two. Um, the big thing was creating your model by reverse engineering your database. database. So right. I'm thinking existing legacy data. Right, but now you're talking about existing applications where you already have your classes. Mm, right? right. So previously, um, I mean, what are you going to do? Take all your classes and now change them to all inherit from entity object, and I'll start to having you know having all this other behavior for them. And we had the the iPoco, the the other interfaces that were um, still pretty tightly bound to the entity framework, but now you don't need any of that. You can just, yeah, so you can pull it into an application that already exists. There are going to be, you know, some some things you might need to do a little differently, but essentially you don't have to go and change your classes to fit into Entity Framework. Entity Framework can just use those classes. Right, and that's what, that's what we mean by POCO objects, plain old CLR objects. In other words, those that aren't bound to the Entity Framework. Or, or any anything. They're not right. bound to they some just, other type of API. They're just sitting out there. And and Carl, anything. for for your benefit, I just want to point out and I, I I just can't help myself. I just that it is plain old CLR objects as you say. I cannot tell you how many people 
I've heard call them plain old C sharp off. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if you think about it, this came from Pojo, right? Plain old yeah, Java yeah. objects, and then, right. and so I'm thinking, well, what's the what are the Microsoft crowd going to do? And good thing they didn't do Pono because that's one R away from something really bad. <laughs> <laughs> Funny, hadn't, hadn't made that leap so quickly as you. Yeah, well, yeah. What's up with that? I'm a guy. That's nice. I'm still trying to get my head around the idea of taking an existing application and retrofitting Entity Framework into it. Would somebody actually do this? Does it make sense? It's possible to do, and it's and it's doable. I, I actually haven't done it, and it depends on how that brownfield application is architected, mm-hmm. right? It does It does need to be architected in a way where you really do have things separated. Where you clearly have a data access layer that you can manipulate. Yeah, right. And so, so that your classes and your data access are pretty, pretty far separated. Now there's, there's also another thing you can do with the POCO classes, which is virtualize them by marking every single property in the class as virtual. And then what happens is that Entity Framework will make a dynamic proxy object that has a, uh, m- most of the same types of features as an entity object. So once that POCO class becomes virtual, when you use it, it starts behaving in, its behavior is similar to an entity object. It's not suddenly inheriting or being, inheriting an entity object. It's, it's just a different kind of, it's called a dynamic proxy. But what it does is it gives that POCO object the capability to notif- talk to the to the context. It gives it an understanding of the context. So it sends change notifications. It also allows it to take advantage of the lazy loading and things like that. So the POCO objects, since they don't, the, the regular ones that you haven't virtualized, they don't know anything about Entity Framework. So they can't, they can't on their own take advantage of Entity Framework things. So you can the, you have to drive everything through the context with them. You have to say, um, "Hey, context, take a snapshot of of the state of the data right now," or "Hey, go go load some related data off of this object." Right. So the context drives all that stuff. So you can kind of have the best of both worlds by having your POCO objects, but then if you make them virtual, and there's some you know, there are definitely some downsides to this also. Um, but if you make them virtual, now you get the best of both worlds because you don't have to explicitly have the context do all that work. You get the lazy loading. You get the change tracking happen automatically. Um, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, and then again, these are the, sort of the ingredients of what am, if I've gone to the trouble of building a data access layer already... What am I winning by migrating that into Entity Framework? And it, and stuff like, late, you know, if you're confronted with the prospect of, I want to start doing some asynchronous loading and so forth, maybe lazy loading is a better solution to that or a simpler solution to it. Yeah, I mean, for me, though, the whole thing about the lazy loading is I just I just want to make sure I control when it's happening and when it's not happening. Right. And, it, and it's not that it's necessarily asynchronous, but that it actually loads only if it really needs to be loaded and it loads as late as possible. Yes. I think that's an important distinction for a lot of folks. Lazy loading is not inherently synchronous. No. Well, I'm just, I'm trying to think is, you know, synchronous and asynchronous with the lazy loading. I mean, it, 
I'm, I actually haven't looked to see if, you know, the world stops while you're getting your lazily loaded data or not. Right. It has to because you're, you're accessing an object where that data is being populated from another thread. Clearly, it's another thread. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you the Rad Control Suite for Silverlight. Are you already playing with Silverlight 3? Then you might have started using .NET RIA services, rich Internet application services, which make data operations a whole lot easier, especially for a line of business applications. So check it out. Our friends at Telerik are again ahead in the game, tapping on the new benefits of Silverlight 3. Their Rad Control Suite for Silverlight now fully supports .NET RIA services and domain data source. So if you're wondering what's in it for you, the answer is pretty straightforward. You get completely codeless binding to RIA services, impressive validation support on the client and on the server. Your customer will also be pleased to sort, filter, and page data much faster as all data operations are now server-side. Besides, the suite also offers out-of-browser support, and as you might already have heard, the first commercial 3D chart. Check out the Telerik Silverlight suite at telerik.com slash silverlight. Don't forget to say thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. What's a self-tracking entity? Oh, self, so self-tracking entities, I want to back up because it'll make it easier to understand them okay. um, by explaining that the code generation from the model has changed totally. Um, in any framework version one, that code generation was proprietary. There was just some additional APIs inside of the entity framework. So when you had a model and you wanted to generate the classes from the model, it would be running, it would run that code. Um, and you could, you could write your own or modify, write your own code generator by learning that API and, and, you know, taking over that code generation process. So they threw that away. And in this version now, we're using T4, which is the text. It's a test. Okay. Do you know what T4 stands for? <laughs> well, no, but oh, we've talked about it before. So it's, it's hard to remember T4's text template transformation toolkit. Right. Maybe not necessarily in that order. <laughs> um, so, and, and that is such a sleeper technology. It's yeah. been in there since Visual Studio 2008. And, it, you know, it's a great code generator. Yep. Um, so re- rather than using a proprietary one, they said, why don't you, why don't we use this one that's already in there? And then if you're making an investment learning it while you're working at Entity Framework, you then have an investment that you can leverage elsewhere. Or you might already have been using T4 and so you can just glom onto it when working with Entity Framework. So they have a default template, which is the, what happens when the code's generated automatically. You don't, you're not involved in it, so it's using the default template. But you can, you can actually take, make a copy, a snapshot of the default template or of some other templates that are provided and modify how that code's generated. You might be using your own classes that come from an existing application, but maybe you are doing something new and you have created a model and you want to generate POCO classes. Or, or, you know, just change how the how the classes are generated. You can do that by modifying the T4 template. Okay. So, um, so Microsoft actually in the feature CTP, which is this out of band release of some extra stuff for Entity Framework that they couldn't get in the box, 
um, one of the things in there is a POCO template. So it, it creates POCO objects for you. Because if you took the default template and try to trim it down, it is a beast. There's just so much in there. It's, it's a lot of work to start from the default. So this is a much cleaner template to start from. So now that we have, now we know all, everything there is to know about <laughs> customizing your code generation from the model, what they've done was they've created a specialized template that not only creates POCO entities out of there, but it gives them special properties. One most, one very important property is some, is properties for change tracking. So they go right into the entity because this is one of the big problems across processes with entity framework is the context is the owner of all of the um, state information and the change tracking information. So the data, the changes to the data you want to make. Yeah, yeah. So without the context, you don't have any, you don't have any idea of what changes have been made to a particular entity. Like right. if you're used to using data sets, all that stuff was inside of there. Yeah. So now it, what, what it'll do is give you, um, enough information. It'll, it's putting it back into the entities and it's not keeping track of every single, keeping two pieces, two copies of every single property, like the original value of the property and the current. It's not doing that in the entity, but it's just enough information to give us, um, at least an idea of what the state is so that when you get across a process now hmm. this is I'm now I'm I'm talking about self-tracking entities now this right, specialized right. poco template self-tracking entities is designed specifically for use with WCF and so so the problem with WCF is when you're you send some entities down to the client client modifies those entities and sends them back you get them back on the server you have no idea if any, you don't know anything about them. Hmm. They might have just might as well have just come from the database. You have no idea that somebody this is new. Somebody just added it. Yeah, you know, maybe hmm. you can look and see, check the keys to see if the key is zero, right? Um, or if somebody edited it, you have no idea. Or you know, if somebody wanted it deleted, there's none that's of that information bad. is there. So that's for a Poco object, though, right? That's even even if you move an entity object across processes like that, because the entity object itself does not have any of that information. It doesn't track its own changes? No. So, I mean, we even had that in data sets in .NET 1.0. A lot of people, when, we started, when people started seeing this with entity objects, entity framework, they're like, wait a minute, data yeah. sets did this for me. And it was really, really hard. And, and, you know, we spent a lot of us spent a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, a patterns to deal with this when you're going across processes. So you lose, so the, the objects get serialized, but the context does not get serialized. And the context actually, it's the context plus, um, a whole other set of little classes called object state entry types. Those, it's actually the object state entries. The context keeps track of those, and they relate back to the entity objects. So not, that stuff isn't serialized, so that doesn't move across the tiers. So all you get back is an entity object with some values in it. So no clue ah. at all. So so now the self-tracking entities, first of all, they are POCO objects. They're, they're not. They don't inherit from entity object. They're much simpler. 
but they do have extra stuff built in them. So they're not maintaining every original value, but what they're maintaining is what the state is. So at least when you get to the other side on WCF, just letting me know that it's new, that's huge. Now I know what to do with it. Let me know that it's unchanged. Great. I don't have to worry about it. Right. So that's what, that's what comes across. So, but there's a little more to the self-tracking entities than just that. So it, it generates the POCO classes, um, along with this new property. But additionally, there's a little more goo that gets generated. There's another set of classes, helper classes, um, and these entities, the POCO classes, inherit from these helper classes. So it's still POCO, though, because it's all self-contained. It's not classes inside of the Entity Framework APIs. So the, the T4 template generates a whole bunch of stuff. It generates new classes in addition to the entity classes. It generates new classes. It generates some method, you know, nice methods. Um, one of the nicest methods in there that you can leverage when you get back over to the server side of the WCF service, it knows how to um, walk a whole graph and do updates through a whole graph where there's nothing else in any framework that knows how to do it. You have to walk the graph yourself, and it's really, really hard. But in, but does it know only to update the fields that have actually changed? Does it know the different fields that have changed? You know, I, I'm trying to remember. I need to go back and look at it really closely again because the the cheap trick for doing an update is um, as long as I know it's modified, then I'm just going to say, all right, update all the values here, update all the properties, which is really no different than, than what we're doing with stored procedures. We're passing yeah. all the values in anyway. Yep. So you're not getting that. The, one of the cool things that Entity Framework does um, when it builds the update commands is it only updates those properties which have changed. So it's really, really efficient. It only right. sends up, you know, the primary keys, any change values, and um, any timestamp values too that you need to that you're using for concurrency. Now you you keep saying this is specific to WCF, but it sounds like this would apply to any well, out of process calls. That's what I thought, Richard. I looked at that. I said, "Oh my gosh, I can use this now in web web applications." Yeah. I I even looked at it and said. This is going to solve um, the transaction, the lack of transactions, and I want to just qualify that. Um, in, when you're doing database interaction with the Entity Framework, that's all transactional. There's there's uh, default that uses the DB transactions. By default, you can override that with system.transaction. But what's not transactional is the object context. So if you're editing objects, and then you want to undo the edits, but you don't want to roll all the way back to the very original values. Right. You can't do it unless you yeah. write your own huge thing. So, and so when I first saw the self-tracking entities, I thought, oh, yay for WCF, and oh, I'll be able to use these for ASP.NET also, and for the for um, make using transactional context. Like I would be hopefully able to use that there. Anyway, I actually had a. Um, conversation with a bunch of people on the team. They were kind of picking my brain about this idea and, you know, this, this other use because they really had designed it specifically to solve the WCF problem. Right. 
And because they did it that way, there's there there are things in there that just won't make it work in these other scenarios. And I can't even say what they are, but they after asking, you know, interviewing me, right, of all the things that I want to be able to do and why with self-tracking entities, they they said, you know, this version is just, it's not going to, they're not going to work to do all this other stuff. Well, it sounds like it's dependent on something in WCF. Uh, I'm not even sure, but it might be. It might be, you know, something in the serialization or maybe something in data contracts or something like that. Well, we can we can figure that out offline and update the uh, listeners. Yeah, the nice thing is this this go around we won't be able to take advantage of it like that, Richard. Yeah. Um, but but now they're like really thinking about that. But it almost might be an encouragement to use WCF too. If you you've got this sounds like a very normal problem. Yeah. You know, I immediately think of RIA services like doing these calls from Silverlight with Entity Framework. I would care about this. Right. Well, you know, if you're using RIA services, though, it's taking care of all those problems for you. And so does Astoria. It's when okay. you're writing your own custom WCF services. Right. Yeah. So they're just trying to, you mean, and, and I guess, yeah, the, the normal use case these days is Astoria, right? Y- yeah. <laughs> Not always. You don't agree? I, I just think that Astoria, and it's sad that we have to use that name because, let's face it, calling it ADO.net data services is stupid. But right, but now it's word. Well, it's a, the the least searchable term known to man. It's, yeah. <laughs> but at least with Astoria, to me, seems like the most agnostic data com- over the wire data communication technique we can hope for. But Richard, they changed the name again. Yeah, I know. It's called WCF Data Services now. Did they really do that? Yes, they aligned. They aligned all of the WCF stuff. So now. Um, RIA Services is now WCF RIA Services, and Astoria, which is what I'll always call it, is WCF Data Services. Great. So they're all some kind of a service for WCF. So now that these are all WCF, they should all work with this entity framework self-referential objects, right? Mm. Well, they do. They do. They already do their own thing in the background. For right. example, Astoria, I mean, Astoria is all REST, right? So they're not, they're not sending the big objects back and forth anyway. It's, it's, right. They're working in a different way. Um, so Astoria does a lot of that. What is it? In the, I'm, I hope I get this right. I think in the SOAP headers or something like that, right? They're, they're sending, they're sending the stuff back and the extra stuff you need back and forth. Right. Can I change gears here and ask you about the model, about uh, whether we need to model or not? Oh, that's a great question, Carl. And you do not need to have a model now. You can do all this without a model. Um, this is another part of the feature CTP, so they, they couldn't get it in the box. But it's called code-only development. Have you seen this? Have you seen any demos of I it? I have not. It's really cool. So... This is what domain-driven developers are, are going crazy about, is don't even bother with a model. So now we're going back to, the you know, design your classes and just have it all work. So the way, the way Entity Framework is doing that, now all of those internal APIs for Entity Framework, they're totally dependent on the metadata that's in the XML for the models. So what... What's happening with this code only is you're not defining a model, but Entity Framework at runtime on the fly 
we'll create all the metadata that the APIs need to use in order to to pull off, you know, the querying and and the change tracking, the relationship management, and the updating. So you do not even need to use a model now. Wow. So this is this is great not only for domain driven developers, um, and you know, and for people who already have um, classes don't need to build a model because they've already built their classes, right? right? The other the other place where there's an interest it solves it. Let me, how do I express this? The other way that it interestingly solves a problem is with large models because the designer really is not designed to make it easy to um, work with really large models. And so if you just forget the model, right, they're all conceptual models, but you don't have to visualize, if you don't need to visualize them, forget the actual model anyway, so you don't have to work with it and just work directly with the classes. Yeah. All of this goes back to all the POCO support. They couldn't have done any of this without the POCO support. So another cool thing about the model is you can, you can well, the, the lack of model. Um, it taps into another process that they've built in called model first design. You can, everything we've done so far, like with version one, was reverse engineering in the existing database. That's yep. how we built the model. And there was always this other option when it said, how do you want to create a model from a database or an empty model? And choosing empty model was just not an option because there wasn't, you couldn't go very far with it. But now you can. You can choose empty model. You can design the model on the surface, and then you can generate the DDL to create a database, create a schema of the database based on that model. So that's one thing you can do in the designer. So you, you still have a visual model there, but the um, part of that process that under, understands how to create the DDL to generate a database and the database schema, Coda only takes advantage of that also. So you can totally start by designing your classes and then having your database your database created based on those classes. Now, of course, there's a lot of people just go, oh, my God, don't you dare gener- automatically generate my database, right? Um, but you can, you can make it a really good start, right? And then, and then give it to a, a really good database designer to fix things up. So there's there's just so much in there um, that is going to be appealing to a lot of different types of developers. I've been watching the agile developers, all those people who signed that no confidence vote thing. You know, there's a lot of those people who are really excited about um, what's about all this new support with, for agile development and testing and domain-driven development in Entity Framework now. Uh, the you, you know you sort of casually said fix up the database. What happens when the when DBAs get a hold of a database that's largely been generated by EF4 and start putting constraints and and so forth in place? Are there ways to pick those things up and reflect them in the model? Oh, it's not a pretty sight, Richard. When the DBAs <laughs> get wind of that, yeah. If you're using an actual model, then you you have access to a feature of the designer that's been there 
since the, early, the first version, which is update model from database. Right. So you can you can pull all that stuff back in. Now, if they start doing that to the database, when you're using code only, I don't. I actually don't know what happens there. There's yeah. no way to suck it back in. Um, and you know, I'm I'm the kind of person who. I'm not qualified to write a database, to design a database, right? I'd right. definitely like a, a designer to, to do that for me. But the other thing to understand about the code only, which is really interesting, is you can really describe a lot of attributes of, of in your classes. And I'm not saying you don't use actual attributes. I'm just saying attributes of, of how attributes that will affect how the database is generated. For example, if you create a, an inheritance hierarchy between classes, there's a, by default, it uses convention over configuration. So by default, oh gosh, I can't remember which one. By default, it uses either, I can't remember, uh, either TPH or TPT. I, I just can't off the top of my head remember which one it picks. Um, but then you can configure that to to use the kind to build your database tables in a way that uses a different type of hierarchy. So there's a lot of a lot of stuff you can do. So a lot of assumptions are made about how the database is generated and how that in-memory metadata is described. Right. But then you can do a lot of configuration. Now, this is interesting because it, this is something you can't do. This, what I'm talking about now is with a code only, but it's something that you can't do when you're using POCO objects with a model. So if you're using POCO classes and a model, they have to line up. You, you've, and um, it's all convention. There's a, assumptions made, and the critical assumption is that um, your property types your property names, you know, they're they're all going to line up. They all are going to match. So you can't configure on top of that to say, well, you know, I know in my model I have it this way, but in my class I want to have it that way. So they really have to line up when you're using POCO with a model. But when you're using code only, it's convention over configuration. So, yeah, there's a lot of assumptions that are made, but then you can tweak, tweak, tweak all over the place. Yeah, I'm just thinking about, you know, the, this code-only approach, generating the database works fine at the rapid iterative development phase where you're trying to get things done. Then you're going to roll it out. You know, the, the app succeeds, people want it, it's got to go to the production database. Yeah, the DBA is going to get there and go, holy crap, what yeah. did you do? Right, but, you know, this has always been the big thing between people like us and domain-driven developers, right? And people for whom the database is an implementation detail. Yeah. Just hold my stuff. Yeah. Right. But, yeah, they, it's going to be a big deal all of a sudden because the, the DBA is the guy who gets left holding the bag. What, you need more than two users to use it. Right. So then so then we go back and we use, you know, let the have a model, have an iterative process between a database designer and your model and and your classes. And, and work that way. So I guess the question is, can we back into that? 
You do your code-only design. It generates a database. The DBA gets a hold of it, restructures it. Can you now pull, reverse engineer that into a model and have it reflect against your code-only set? I'm thinking no. You, no, you can't go all the way back. So okay. if you, but you just said something interesting. So start, start by designing the classes. Let code only let, uh, allow you to generate a database and then a model and then go and then just use the model in the classes. You got right. to do something with the classes to now turn them into POCO classes instead of code only POCO. I mean, they're they're all Pogo classes, so there'd be some tweaking there. You know, my brain is going, "Oh, that's another thing to try out." Like, yeah. oh, that would be, you know, <laughs> a whole book of just like trying out all these ideas. And they're like, "No, no, I'm not writing another book." <laughs> <laughs> but you know, <laughs> no. I think that the reward of using the framework comes later on in the multiple iterations of apps where this stuff is easy to maintain and add to and so forth. And so where we're going to find the pain is only, you know, fairly far down the road. And, you know, well, that's why they named it Entity Framework 4. (laughs) 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 So people will think we're further down the road already. There you go. Very nice. Yeah. So they, you know, what they're doing is, um, this piece of it, is new, right? And and I know that people who are really big-time domain-driven developers are really excited about it. So it, it works for them. And I have a lot to learn about that because I ask the same kind. I'm, I'm always like, but what about the DBA? <laughs> what about the DBA? What's going to happen? He yelled at me last time. He's going to yell at me again. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, there are so many different styles of development. Yeah. That what what's really happening is, you know, Microsoft saying if you want to do data access with our tools, you got to use entity framework, right? And and that's great for like me, like I'm all I was using data sets anyway, I'm using SQL Server and, you know, I can do I can do that. All that reverse engineering, I've already got all my databases. That's great. But then there was all these people who were left out. There was nothing. There was nothing there for them. So it was the agile developers, people right. who wanted to be able to write real, real unit tests um, throughout the application, not just you know, not just in in within the classes where there was nothing to do with the database anyway, um, and the domain driven developers. So now, now what it's doing is saying, okay, you know, everybody's allowed to come to the party now. You know, however, however you do it, just have have more of this flexibility. Speaking of crazy agile developers, when we were all together last was in Sweden at Ordev. Yeah, and you and Oren Eni were huddled in the corner. Our <laughs> <laughs> dirty little secret at a pub, no less. It, yeah, we were all drinking too, as I recall. And Carl was playing the guitar, and and what were you guys working on? We're working on an entity framework version of his profiling tool. So he, um, Oren, for anybody who actually doesn't know this, Oren is the the guy behind, the, the I would say the most visible guy behind N-Hibernate. Um, and he has a bunch of products, he and a, a couple other guys with his hibernating rhinos have a products, uh, product called NH Profiler, which does all the database profiling to show you what's going on in N-Hibernate, um, you know, when it's, when it's hitting the database. 
he made a version of that for a link to SQL, which is, I think it's L2S prof profile or something like that. And he really wanted to do one for Entity Framework. And I loved the idea because, um, you know, profiling, constantly looking at what's going on in SQL profile is just, I'm sorry, a drag, <laughs> right? And right. I'm sure there's, you know, there's lots of different things you can do with it. But this this works directly with the entity frame with with whichever ORM we're talking about. So he wanted to do it, but there was just a bunch of stuff he didn't understand about entity framework. Right. So he had gotten past the big issue, like uh, entity framework shouldn't exist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so that's everybody the big one did, for him. I mean, crazy thing, right? Well, Oren, he's he's a very very smart guy. He saw an, he saw a business opportunity, <laughs> right? Right. He, he I said yes. We need profiling. I mean, there's in addition to you know SQL profilers, the tool I happen to know because I use SQL Server, right? So there's other um, lots of other databases you can use with Entity Framework. I have no idea what they do for profiling. Um, so he. With oh, with Entity Framework, not only can you look at the you know on, at the database tool, there are a couple of runtime things you can do. Actually, there's just one, uh, something called two trace strings. So at the runtime, you can take a look at a query that's going to be executed and and see what its um, store query looks like. Right. right. But it's so limited. It's 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 not for updates. It's it's not for you know any of the DML. And it's not going to, you can't look at lazy loading, you can't look at explicit loading, all you can do is look at queries. And even then, if you've um, added a link method like dot first to your query, you're not going to see that in the in the uh, two trace string. So it's really, really limited. Anyway, so I loved the idea of having a profiler. And so he, I just said to him when he asked, you know, about the idea, I said, oh, my God, people will really, really benefit from it. So he wanted to do it, and, and I was, was helping him. I was I was mostly being his muse because I, I was being his navigator around the Entity Framework APIs. That was really about it. <laughs> how do we do this? Where is this? Right? And then he'd, have, he'd get stuck and ask me, well, how does this work? And I'd be thinking about, like, you know, the problem and and trying to figure out what he's doing and what he might be hitting and why it might be acting like that. And before I even like got anywhere down the road, he'd be like, oh, I got it. Okay. And he'd be moving on already. <laughs> his brain is <laughs> his brain is crazy. It's so, it's so typical Oren, too, that he was doing this in between giving his sessions at Ordev. Yeah. Right. His, yeah, he's just the way he 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 thinks is <laughs> it's just not the same as most people. Just at hyper hyper warp speed. Anyway, so he he he's put it out. It's in beta now. Um, Efprof.com, um, and and it was really fun because you know there was just all this apathy between alt.net community and um, people who you know worked with Entity Framework. I mean, mostly they were targeting and entity framework and Microsoft, but I certainly got in the way because I was a visible flagpole for entity framework. So the bigger part of it, it was just fun to, you know, be working with Oren and, and for him and I to be able to say, look, we, we're working together like Nixon and China. <laughs> <laughs>
I don't know which one of us is Nixon and which one is China. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Well, I figured out which one's bigger. <laughs> so, Julie, how's Vermont? You under snow out there, up there? We are. We got. We finally got our big dump. We didn't get it when you did, but um, over the last, over this past weekend, we got like a foot and a half or more of snow down in Burlington, and I'm only about 25 miles from Burlington. They've got lake effect snow. They got 31 inches of snow. Right. Crazy. And it's been a lot of fun. We've got uh, a Newfie, a Newfoundland dog, who's he's actually is part Newfoundland, part giraffe, and part alligator. So he's got these <laughs> really, really long long legs and a very snappy mouth. Um, and even his, with his very, very long legs, he's, he's gotten to a point where we're tromping through the snow and, he, you know, he can't even lift his leg to pee because uh-huh. the snow's just up so high. Ah, uh, wow. That's too bad. A little more than information I needed. <laughs> but... <laughs> hey, I'm always good for a little TMI. All right. <laughs> well, Julie, it's been absolutely delightful talking to you about EF4. Good luck with your book and, uh, and we'll see you around at some conference somewhere, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, we, we do that. Well, it's been fun, and I'll see you guys soon, I'm sure. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklin's.com. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.